church. It's great to be together and to worship today. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you and just say thanks so much for taking time to be here with us this morning. I'd like to welcome you to uh, just take your worship programs and inside them. There's a little card we put in there, a little insert. If you just take a moment, fill that out, tell us how you heard about us as a church, that'd be a wonderful blessing to us. And on your way out, you can either drop in the offering boxes or if you take it out the first time, guys, kiosk, we've got a gift that we want to give you. Um, just our way of saying thank you for being here, for filling that card out and uh, for giving us a chance to try and connect you to Jesus so that your life can be transformed by him. And uh, by way of celebration, just to continue in our worship this morning, um, I want to share with you, before we even get into the message, just uh, some things that God's doing, changing people's lives. We talk about people's lives being changed all the time. And uh, last week, when Pastor Jason was sharing, he mentioned that I was going to be sharing at another church here in town, uh, Fellowship Bible Church over off Capitol Boulevard, uh, Fellowship Raleigh. And I was over there talking to them Sunday evening just about... um, Evangelism, how to share our faith. You know, there's a terrible statistic out there that uh, most people who say that Jesus is their Savior and that he changed everything about their lives, that he's changing their eternal destiny, don't ever talk about him. In fact, stats say, um, and we talked about this as a church a couple years ago, um, that most of uh, born-again followers of Jesus don't share Jesus with other people, and even that 20% of Christians would say that they don't even have a, a person that they know that's not saved that they're praying for on a regular basis. And so one of the things we did a couple years ago as a church is uh, we started a, a vision that we talked about of everybody having at least one person. And we talk about who's your one, so that eventually everybody in our church, everybody at least that's a member that says that this is their mission, um, is sharing Jesus uh, with a lost person, is trying to love a lost person to Christ, is caring for them, and is praying for them regularly. So we want to blow that stat out of the water. So I go to this church, I start sharing with them, and they've got these little cards at their church, who are your two? I'm like, what is this, like a competition? Like, what's going on here? And uh, they're trying to reach the city for Christ as well. And so I, I talk to them about sharing Jesus, how to share their story, talk to them about if Jesus is the most treasured thing in your life, and obviously you talk about him, we talk about when we get engaged, when somebody's born, like all that, all that stuff that we get excited about. Um, so of course we talk about Jesus, and so we talk about how to talk about Jesus, and when I was done speaking, this woman comes rushing right up to me. I mean, she wanted to make sure she was the first one to talk to me, she's right there, and she just starts saying, all this great stuff about our church. She says, I want to thank Southbridge, I want to thank your church, all the ministries that go on there, the stuff that happens, and then she says, my son-in-law trusted Christ at your church. And she starts to share with me about how her son-in-law came to Christ, and how it's obviously changed his life. It's changed their daughter's life, obviously. It's changing their lives. And their whole family's at this church now. And so he came to Christ at Southbridge, but now he's over at this other church. And so I don't know who your one is, but I know how that guy came to Christ. There was a couple at our church that invited him to come to church. He came to Christ, and uh, now he's at another church here in this town, and he's spreading the light of Christ around the city. And that's the vision that's happening. And so you can give the Lord a hand, by the way, for that. We saved that guy, and I was using him to, to impact other people's lives, and uh, here we are today. We're going to open up the book of Habakkuk today. We're going to start a new series, and uh, I'm going to talk for just a minute before we get there. So that gives you a head start if you want to find Habakkuk, by the way, which probably isn't as easy as some others, um, but you can look for Habakkuk. We're going to start in Habakkuk today. We just wrapped up another series um, talking about people's lives being changed. Every time we do a series, God works in different people's lives in different ways, and uh, we, the series we just wrapped up was called Making the Most Of, and in that series... Uh, we were talking about really John chapter 10, that we want to live life to the fullest, that we want to live the abundant life, that we want to make the most of everything God's entrusted to us. And so we talked really about stewardship of life. And how can we be good stewards of the time that we have here, of the gifting that God's given us, of the relationships we have, of his word that he's given to us, of the money that we have. And so I, I got emails from different folks um, that share different things, the way that God was changing their lives, and asked some of them if I could share them with you. And so I just want to read you a couple of excerpts from different people. There was one couple that had written me. 
a bunch of stuff that God was doing in their lives, but they talked specifically about how they had taken the tithe challenge. Now, you may remember when we talked about money in the last series, uh, we challenged if you weren't a tither to take a 90-day challenge. And so she wrote me after their first week of tithing, she said this, I'll read you her exact words. So we decided to take the challenge, as you know, and after our first tithe last Sunday, we received a check in the mail from Duke for an overpayment for a doctor's visit. I saved a huge amount on groceries. Many of the sale items were things that we would buy on a regular basis. And then she said this, There is truth in cheerfully giving to his kingdom, not expecting a check each week, just to be clear for everybody, but in seeing how we will, he will work in our lives when we continue to trust in him. Now, here's the crazy thing. I wrote this young lady, and I said, uh, Would you mind if I shared? And I pulled a little excerpt out of all the stuff she shared out of her email, this little part that I just read to you. Do you care if I share that? She said yes, but then she said, Well, you're not going to believe this. I can't make this up. Then God gave us free groceries this week and started telling me the story about free groceries. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying if you give to God, he's going to write you a check from Duke. Maybe you've never even been to Duke or give you groceries. Here's what this couple's learning. When you trust God with what he's given us, he's going to take care of us. He provides for us. He's trustworthy. That's what they're learning. I had another young lady who wrote me and was talking about her talents. And she shared with me multiple things, how each week God was teaching her something different. And she shared in vulnerability. One of the things that was going on in her life was that when she would feel lonely, um, which was a struggle, she'd go shopping. That was kind of her way to medicate um, her loneliness inside. And she wrote this. Through the gifts analysis, um, that was after we did the, the, and you can still do it, but if you want to, but, um, and there's multiple people in our church that are trying to find their sweet spot in serving, but it was a gifts uh, survey that we did. But she said that after the gifts analysis, and spending so much more time in God's word, searching there instead of at home goods, I'm making sense of who God made me to be. I can't express to you the joy that I've experienced of late. And it's amazing that when we make the Lord the focus in our lives, how other things seem to fall into place. My relationship with my girls or her daughters, our budgets balancing, and most of all, my relationship with the lover of my soul is growing by leaps and bounds. God's at work. The vision's happening. People's lives are being changed, and, and God does it in different ways. Every time we open up the scriptures, he does it in different ways. And so we're going to start today in Habakkuk. That last series was about stewardship of life, the stuff that God's entrusted to us. Let me tell you what Habakkuk is all about. Here's the big picture. Faith. It's a short book. It's only three chapters. It's one of the minor prophets in the, in the end of the Old Testament, for those of you who might still be looking for it. Um, some people call it uh, the book of the 12, and so the, there's 12 books at the end. They're just called minor prophets, not because what they have to say is less important, because the books are shorter. And so we go there, and what we see is in those three chapters that Habakkuk shares with us, the central theme is faith every week. In fact, it's very central in the book. The key verse is Habakkuk chapter 2. We won't get there today, but Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 says, The righteous will live by faith. It's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. The righteous one will be faithful, will live by faith. In fact, it's really interesting. I talk about it being central. It's actually the central of the book, literally. Um, the book of Habakkuk, like the Old Testament as a whole, was written in Hebrew. So what you have is a translation. The New Testament was written in Greek. That's a translation uh, written in English. And if you count all the Hebrew words in the book of Habakkuk, the very center of the book is Habakkuk 2.4. And what's really cool is that some of the scribes, when they would write down um, this book, they would translate and write it down so multiple people would have copies, they would write those verses in the middle with larger letters than the rest of the book. To stand out. The righteous will live by faith. Now here's what's happening in the book of Habakkuk. Dark days. It's difficult. And the, and the questions are things like this. Will you trust me when you don't like what's happening? Will you trust me when you don't like the answers I give for what's happening? Will you trust me when none of it makes sense? Will you trust me? It's all about faith. So I'm going to pray for us as we open up the book of Habakkuk this morning. Just that God will work in our faith. 
and grow us in our trust, grow us in our maturity in Christ, grow us in our, our faith in Christ, grow us in our trust in God. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd make us people of faith, um, that you'd have us trust you. Um, in these next three weeks, I pray you'd grow our faith supernaturally, that you'd do something um, that would make us trust you beyond what makes sense. I pray that you'd help us to trust you in ways that we've never trusted you before. And I pray that you'd make it evident. I pray you'd make it evident to the lost people, um, the way that we trust you. I pray you'd make it evident to those that are found, um, that are maybe struggling or wavering, that you'd use our faith in some way, and that you'd use these truths that we read from your word um, just to show us how you're our rock, you're our strong tower, you're our shield, you're our protector, and that we'd hide under your wings and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Habakkuk. Chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, verses 1 through 11. And like I said, he's one of the minor prophets. Here's one of the interesting things about Habakkuk being a prophet. Usually when you think about a prophet, a prophet is someone who gets a word from God and then speaks it to the people. That's not at all what happens in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, if you read through the whole thing, all three chapters, nowhere does he address the people. Instead, what we have is the prophet of God, this man of God, is now speaking on behalf of the people to God. And so what we get to do in this book is we basically get to watch. There's no, um, here's the commandment to Israel. How does it apply to us today, thousands of years later, in America? There's none of that in this book. What we're doing is we're watching a relationship of a godly man with God. And how does it work? How does it happen? And we see his frustrations. We see his questions. We see the difficulty that happens. In fact, here's an outline of the whole book. I'll give you the whole book in just like a minute. In the first four verses, it just starts right off with Habakkuk asking some tough questions, questions that you and I, we've all asked before, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. And maybe some of you that aren't even Christians, you've asked these questions. And they're tough. And then God responds in verses 6 through 11. He answers. Habakkuk doesn't like the answers. So he asks some more questions. And then in verse 12 through the end of chapter 1, he's asking more questions. And these are things I know to be true about you. And then my experiences, my theology, my experiences, they don't seem to be lining up. What's the problem here, God? And then chapter 2, God answers again. And then chapter 3, what we get is how Habakkuk responds in worship. And chapter 3 is really a psalm. And it's all about faith. And so let's look at it together. Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's read these first four verses to get started. It says, The oracle... The vision, the burden, the Habakkuk, the prophet received. Here's what he says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you. Violence. But you do not save. You do not rescue. You don't bring revival. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflicts abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. It's numb. It has no effect. And the injustice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Let me summarize that. Things are bad. There's lots of historical background taking place here. Debate even about which exact circumstances are happening. Here's what we know to be true for sure. It's bad. And Habakkuk, this man of God, is coming before God in a very honest way and saying exactly how he feels. It's called a lament. It's a cry for Sorrow, it's a cry out of pain. And what we see here is him being honest. I read another pastor who outlined this passage this week. And the way that he outlined the passage was, he talked about the dangers of not being honest with God. 
He talked about all the bad things that can happen in your relationship with God. You don't grow in your worship. Um, you become a pretender. You become a fake. And Christ isn't central in your life. The essence of his message was this. It's impossible to mature in your faith if you won't be honest with God. I want to launch off of that outline and say so the reason why we can be honest with God today is this, because God can handle your biggest burdens. And that's our big idea today. God can handle the biggest burden that you have. And so he can certainly handle the small stuff. He can handle your biggest burden. Do you know what your biggest burden is? And some of you might think, yeah, it's the situation at work, or maybe it's this thing that's happened with my family. No, here's your biggest burden. You were a sinner separated from God for eternity. You had no shot of being good enough, allowing your good stuff to outweigh your bad stuff, of trying to earn some way, if you just came to church enough times, if you got married at the church, if you took communion, if you got baptized, if you were confirmed, if you did all this, you have no shot. You're not good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. The best you can do, Isaiah tells us, is like a pile of filthy rags. That's your biggest burden. He can handle your biggest burden, then guess what? He can handle all the other stuff too. But oftentimes we think he can't. He's got the big one, but... We'll handle this other stuff, and then it becomes too much, and then we pretend, and we don't grow, and we become immature, and our faith stifles, and we wonder why everything's so dry. See, the reality is we all have burdens, temporary ones, small ones that we carry around, all kinds of stuff. It's like a weight that we carry around. Think about it like this. Um, many of you work out. I know that. Some of you here even own. I know we have a couple people here that own gyms. And uh, I know everybody's got different philosophies on how to work out and do all that kind of stuff. But uh, for those of you who work out at the gym, do you ever watch somebody else work out and think to yourself about you doing that exercise? I watch people sometimes and I think, I am never doing that. Like, that looks terrible. I saw this guy a couple days ago at the gym. He was making a face I don't ever want to make. It was like, his face. Like, I'm never doing that. And, but I was watching, I was jogging on the treadmill uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And uh, I saw these guys, that, where I work out, there's like this mini track that goes around uh, the gym. And they were carrying weights around the track. And I thought to myself, now that's efficient, track and weights at the same time. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about some of these exercises, but I was talking to another guy, and, and he was telling me that, oh, that's a really good exercise. So I thought, well, I'm going to try that out. But then I've got to decide, how much weight do you lift? And so I'm not very good at picking weights, so then the, especially on exercises I haven't done before. In fact, the other day I was at the gym, and a, a friendly person from Southbridge came up to me. And I'm standing in the front of the gym. The lighter weights are in the front of the gym. The heavier weights are in the back. This guy walks up to me, and he's being so kind to his pastor. He says, you know that the, the guy weights are in the back. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know. I'm just, maybe I just picked them up after that 10-year-old left the Zumba class. I mean, just because they're, they're pink. I didn't know they were gender-specific. You know, I'm just lifting these weights. And I come to the back, and uh, I'm looking to do this exercise where you walk around the track with these weights. And so I grabbed the biggest ones I could find. And so I, I, my wife was there that day, so I wanted to impress her. And so I grabbed these weights, right? And I can pick them up. And uh, I decided I'm going to start carrying them around. So I'm carrying them around. At first, I'm doing fine carrying them around. But you know what? After I got going for a little while, I was like, this kind of hurts. I don't want to go too fast, because if you go too fast, everybody knows you're rushing. So I'm trying to look cool, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to lift in these things. And then after a while, I set them down, though. I just kind of set them down. I didn't throw them down. I was like, you know, stretch out. Just got to stretch. I don't want to pull anything. But I carry them for, and I start to do a couple laps around the thing. And by the time I get to the end, my shoulders are burning. I'm just like, ah, get these out of here. Like, oh, oh, oh. here's the deal. You might be able to lift more weights than me. You may have a bigger capacity than me. You can carry them for a while. But everybody at some point can't carry the weight anymore. We all have weights that we carry. Some of the weights you carry might be from your past. Some of the weights you carry might be about things that you have anxiety about that may happen in the future. Some of the stuff might be going on in your life right now. We all carry weights. 
question is, what do you do with them? Because you can't carry them forever. You suppress them, but pretend like it's not a big deal. Put on your happy face. Are you honest with God? Here we get this guy, Habakkuk. Look at the weights he's carrying. Just in these first four verses, just in verses two through four, in three verses, I went through and I underlined just some of the things. He's carrying the burden of violence that's happening. Injustice. Wrong, verse three. And then he says again, destruction and violence. There's strife and conflict, continual arguing that's taking place. The law is not doing any good. The wicked hem in the righteous. Those are his burdens. And so what does he do? He takes them to God. Do you know why? Because God can handle them. This guy's not sinning. This is the prophet. He says, Habakkuk, the prophet. This is God's man speaking to God and letting the rest of us look in. And what he says in verse 2, how long? How long? Popular phrase that we get in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? Must I, and you can underline this word, call for help, but you do not listen? Or, and then underline this word, cry out to you, violence? So you've got two words there. They seem to say the same thing. They don't. The first word there means like it's translated. I call out to you. You've got a problem and you call, I need help. 911, there's help, call, calling out. The second word, cry, the second word's different than just calling out for help. The second word's to scream. In pain. I call out to you, and what does he say happens? You don't listen. I cry to you, blood-curdling type scream, and you don't come. You don't deliver or save. I don't know what it's like at your house. At our house, we've got four kids, and uh, they're always calling out to us. So, you know, Mom... So what's those in my room? Dad, I need jelly on the toast or whatever. And they just blah, 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 blah. They're just calling out all the time. Eventually, it's like, whatever. Figure it out. You got it. You know, life skills. You know, I feel like I'm discipling you by ignoring you. And so we just... <laughs> happens. And, uh, but then sometimes... It's not all the time, but sometimes you get that scream. And you know, no matter what's happening... As a parent, you're dropping it. You're, you're running up the steps. We've got one daughter that's sick right now. And so she's just, oh, no, I don't feel good. I can't go to sleep. Okay, try harder. You know? But when they're screaming or they're throwing up, boom, up the step, boom, I'm there. I'm here. I walk back and saying, I call out and you're not listening. And I even cry. And you don't show up. How long? How long do I have to be in this situation with the violence and the wicked are hemming and the righteous and the injustice and all the things that are happening in my life, the strife and the conflict, the destruction? And it's like you're not even there. Like you're absent. Have you ever felt that? And God's absent. I mean, we know the promise is low, I'll be with you always. I'm here today, yesterday, today, forever. He's never changing. He's always present. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And we read all that stuff in Scripture. But then in those moments of darkness, in the moments of difficulty, when you're carrying the weight around, it seems like he's not there. C.S. Lewis has a quote I'd love to share with you. He says this. I think it describes what we've all experienced at one time. He says, At the moment of my most profound need, God, 
who had seemed always available to me, suddenly seemed distant and absent, as if he had slammed a door shut and double-bolted it from inside. Ever felt that? That's Habakkuk. And so he says, how long? How long? How long do I have to feel like this? How long do I have to go through this? And this is why we can identify with Habakkuk. That's one of the reasons why so many people in times of difficulty turn to the Psalms. Because the Psalm, a third of the Psalms are lament. Did you know that? Do you know Lament is we're crying out in sorrow. We're crying out for help. That's a third of the Psalms are that. We've got whole books of the Bible that are about this. We've got Job. Job's about suffering when you don't understand your suffering. We've got a whole book called Lamentations, Lamenting, by a prophet that's a contemporary of Habakkuk. Difficult times are happening. How long? And we read this, and we can identify with Habakkuk because we've all been there. But let me ask you this question. Why do you think God, who is ever-present, who is always there, who will never leave us or forsake us, promised in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, why would he allow us to feel that way? Because we oftentimes think about it from Habakkuk's perspective. Let's think about it from God's perspective for a moment. Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he let us as his children feel that way? I was reading a blog this week by a guy who talked about absence. And he asked some questions that I think help us to think about this. And so I'll just read you some of his questions. His name is John Bloom. He's writing on Desiring God. He said this. Why is it that absence makes a heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? He talks about how when we are um, in deprivation, sleep deprivation before war deprivation from God when it seems like he's absent how it draws out our desires why is water so much more refreshing when we're really thirsty why am I almost never satisfied with what I have but always long for more why can the thought of being denied a desire for marriage or children or freedom or some other dream create in us a desperation we previously didn't have Why is the pursuit of earthly achievement often more enjoyable than the actual achievement? Why did deprivation, adversity, scarcity, and suffering often produce the best character qualities in us, while prosperity, ease, and abundance often produce the worst? Why would God allow us to think that he's absent, to feel that he's absent? And what Bloom's getting at here is there's something in us that when something's missing, we long for it more. It draws out our desire. And so we can read Psalms like Psalm 23 when David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why does he say that? Why? Anybody know that Psalm? Psalm 23, 4? Because you're with me. Well, but he knows what it's like to feel abandoned. A third of the Psalms are, how long? How long do I have to feel this way? My bones wasted away. I was crushed sometimes because of your sin. Sometimes because of my enemies surround me. Sometimes it's because of difficult circumstances I don't like and I don't agree with. Read through the Psalms. But yet the same guy knows what it's like. The same guy that writes Psalm 63. So Psalm 23, he talks about being with me. In Psalm 63, you know what he says? When he's fleeing from his son Absalom, who's trying to take his kingdom, things are going really bad in his life. In a dry and weary land, he's out in the desert. So in a dry and weary land that there's no water. My soul longs for you. I want you. It's in the absence that we then want him. And so we identify with the person who's feeling God's absence. But what about God? Do you know the first person in the scriptures to say how long isn't someone who's upset with God? It's God himself speaking to his people. He says this in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 28. How long will you, 
Hebrew word for you there is in the plural. Southern Hebrews. How long will y'all refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? How long before you'll be faithful? When they're about to enter the promised land the first time, and they believe the skeptical spies who say they can't do it, that God's not big enough, the people in the land are big, all the stuff is big, we just can't do it. In Numbers chapter 14, God says this, verse 11, The Lord said to Moses, the leader of the people, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I performed among them, what do I have to do to get you to believe? How many miracles need to take place? How long, what do you think it's like from God's perspective? How long before you'll walk by faith? How long before you'll trust me? How long before you'll believe that I got this? How long? Maybe what's happening in those moments when we're crying out like a backache, how long? I mean, some of us suppress it and pretend like it's not real and we just keep trying to carry the weight around on our own. But, but those of us who are crying out, maybe what he's doing is the best thing that could possibly happen for us. Because let me tell you something, many of us are to live oblivious to. God cares a lot more about your faith relationship with him than he does about your prosperity. Or about your comfort, or about your security, or about whether you ever get married, or about whether you have kids, or about... He cares a whole lot more about the biggest thing in your life. His relationship with how long before my people will obey me? How long before they'll be faithful? How long before they'll trust me? How many miracles do I have to do? How long? Because God uses these difficult moments as the very thing that draws out our desire and desire ultimately for him. Peter in the New Testament, he writes to suffering believers in 1 Peter. It's a great book if you're going through difficult times. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 to people that are suffering. In this you greatly rejoice. Huh? Though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and many kinds of trials like Pastor Jad was reading earlier. These have come that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Temporary, momentary struggles that you have will produce a glory for God when you walk by faith. It shows your faith. It refines your faith. I'm developing your faith. How long? He can handle the biggest burdens. And God works in unbelievable ways. And that's what happens here with Habakkuk. Habakkuk gets told that God works in unbelievable ways. He spends these first four verses telling God how bad the situation is and how God's not showing up and how absent God is and how God doesn't listen. And you may even look at your Bibles as if you brought your own copy of the scriptures and you'll see that, that what I'm about to read you, there's some parallelism, which the Old Testament uses all the time. He says uh, that I have to look at injustice. Look at as a key word. Look at injustice. And he says, why do you tolerate wrong? To tolerate, the word literally means to stand by and watch. You just let it happen. And then look at what God says in verse 5. Because God's going to prepare him for the unbelievable things that God's going to do. So if we're going to be honest with God, if we're going to go to God and take our burdens, we've got to be ready for how he's going to respond. Here's how God responds. Look, key word, at the nations and watch. He's using the same words that Habakkuk used. He's answering him with his own words. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed and stand in wonder. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. So even if I answered all your questions, Habakkuk, you wouldn't get it. 
You wouldn't believe it. What I'm going to do is unbelievable stuff. Now, I was sharing this with somebody this week, and we were just talking through the book of Habakkuk, and I said, the first four verses, he's asking these questions. How long for this? Why do you allow this? What about destruction? There's injustice happening. If you're loving, why these things? And I'm telling, and the person, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in verse 5, God says, listen, I'm going to give you the answers. Even if I told you the answers, though, you wouldn't believe it. And they kind of lit up. It's like an inspiring verse. And this would be a great verse for a capital campaign, wouldn't it? You can do some unbelievable things. But if you read the context of what I'm about to read to you in verses 6 through 11, let me tell you what it says, my summary. God's going to put the smack down on Israel. So he's about to lay the boomstick, those of you who like football. This is going to be the biggest hit you've ever seen. And it's God, and he's doing it with wicked people. He's going to use the Babylonians. Because the people that are having the problems up in verses 2 through 4, it's not all the persecution that's coming to them. It's because God's people are being wicked. It's God's people that are doing the violence. It's God's people that are tolerating the injustice, that are looking at the wrong and standing by and watching and doing nothing. It's God's people that are arguing with each other with the strife and the conflict. It's God's people that are hemming in the righteous people. There's a remnant there. It's God's people that are having problems with each other. It's not the Assyrians. It's not the Babylonians. It's not the Egyptians. It's not some ite that we can't remember it's them. And so what God says, as the prophet cries out for revival, how long do I cry out about the wrong and you don't save? Bring revival. God says, that's not what I'm going to do. I've done that before. I'm bringing judgment. I'm bringing discipline. I'm going to show my wrath. I'm going to show my justice. And you wouldn't believe it if I told you about it. What's really interesting, we won't get there this week, is that God then gives the answers how he's going to do it. And then, and then Habakkuk says, I don't believe that. That doesn't, no, you wouldn't do that. It doesn't seem to line up with who you are. But he says, I'm going to use this wicked people, and I'm going to judge my people. Look what he says. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then that would be like uh, hearing, and ISIS is going to come. I'm not saying ISIS is going to come. My kids ask me, is ISIS going to come to America? I'm not saying that. I don't know. But it'd be like hearing that, because look at how he describes them. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. They're feared and dreaded people. People tremble before them. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honor. And then he goes animal planet in verse 8. Their horses, like tanks to the, the people that are hearing this, their jets, are swifter than leopards. Have you seen animal planet? A leopard kills something? That's crazy. Leopards run 35 miles per hour. They see some goat or something. There's some I mean, hobbled gazelle out there. And then they, they nail it, rip its guts open, they kind of look up at the... Do you notice they always look at the camera, got like guts hanging from their mouth like it's a... Yeah, look at that. It's a leopard. And leopards, they'll steal animals, you know, the slower animals than them. They'll go like, you know, you know some other the wolf or something has something. They'll go, to just take that. That's mine too. That's what these people are like. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. That's wolves who haven't eaten all day. The cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. It's the animal planet, I told you. They come bent on violence. It's the Babylonians. That's why I say, like ISIS, you know, I see they burned somebody alive last week on TV. They're cutting people's heads off. We read about the Babylonians doing the same type of stuff in the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, you can read a situation where they come and get one of Israel's kings. His name is Zedekiah. They kill his sons in front of his face. Then they gouge his eyes out, so that's the last thing he sees before... He goes blind. That's the Babylonians. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. And so picture the wind blowing through the desert and it just gathers more and more sand. 
They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at their rulership. They laugh at all the fortified cities and the walls that are around them. They build earthen ramps and capture them. So that was a tactic to climb the walls. You just build a ramp up to the wall. Then they sweep past like wind and they go on. Not only do they take that, but they continue to proceed. And then God says what these people are like, guilty men. And it's not that they're going to turn to me and start following me and they're going to become my people. He says, whose own strength is their God. I'm going to use these wicked people as the very thing to bring judgment on you. Within eight years of this prophecy being stated, the Israelites would be in exile for 70 years. So judgment's coming. So Habakkuk, here's what's happening. Something that I'm doing, and you think I'm absent. I'm at work. And you think I don't listen. I hear everything you're saying. And I hear the cries of my people, just like I did when, when Pharaoh was beating my people and I, I heard their cries for 400 years in Egypt. Now I hear this, and I know, and I'm at work. But even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't get it. And so let me give you a glimpse of what I'm doing. And then he doesn't get it. And so what do we see? God works in unbelievable ways. But unbelievable doesn't mean, hey, your best days are ahead. Hey, the best is yet to come. Hey, some prosperity is about to fall. I know that you can't pay your bills right now, but just keep praying and God will dump a leprechaun on your front porch with a pot of gold. No, God's at work. But you trust that he actually knows what's best to do, even if it wouldn't make any sense to you, because you know what happens to us? We get so focused on our thing that we miss all that God's doing. In fact, if you go to this passage and you look at what Habakkuk said in verses 2 through 4, he's just talking about his local problem, what's happening here in Judah. Look at the violence. Look at the strife. Look at the arguments that are taking place. Look at all the things that are happening. And what does God say to him? First thing, verse 5, look at the nations. I'm going to go global with you, Habakkuk, because all you're talking about is your little domestic situation, what's going on in your house with your little family and this little thing. Let me tell you about what I'm doing. Look at the nations. And I've got a plan. I'm going to use you, and you're not going to like it, and you wouldn't believe it, even if I told you what it was. So let me give you a little glimpse of what it is. And he doesn't like it. But God's at work. Because here's the reality. God sees stuff you don't see. God's bigger than you. God knows stuff you don't know. And God knows better than you. And that's what he's showing Habakkuk here. So will you trust him? We see it all throughout the Bible. Whenever you get that why question, God gives us a little glimpse of himself. See, what, what happens here is that God doesn't answer directly Habakkuk's questions. I let Warren Wearsby says it like this. In, in verses 6 through 12, uh, you don't get explanations. You get revelation. And that's what you get throughout the Bible. When Job's complaining to God for a while, what does God do? He doesn't come and answer all of Job's questions. He comes and says, let me tell you who I am, Job. So it's to reveal himself. He's not given explanation. He's given revelation. And what he's doing here is he's showing himself. Let me show you who I am. You see your little thing. I see all of it. I see all around you. I see before you what's going to happen in the future. I know what happened in the past. I know what's going on around you now. I know things that are happening that you don't even know about Habakkuk. You, I mean, you'd be complaining like crazy if you knew this other stuff. And I know all of it. And you don't. And I'm even using these wicked Babylonians as part of my plan to grow your faith. So will you trust me? Remember when we did the, the series on trending now, people ask questions. Why do bad things happen? Why did my husband die? Why, do, why did I lose the baby? Why, did, why does this diagnosis come? Why are these things happening? And we talked about, when we went in Job, we looked at Job chapter 1. We don't have time to go through the, all of Job chapter 1, but in Job chapter 1 we talked about how with the why questions, 
We don't always know the why, but we can always know there's a why. What happens in Job chapter 1, if you look at the structure of that, is that Job sees the very first part of the chapter and the very end of the chapter. He doesn't see the middle part of the chapter, verses 6 through 12. In verses 6 through 12, something's happening. God sees, none of them see. What they look at is that Job's being faithful and the natural disasters start taking place. They don't see verses 6 through 12. Job never sees it all through the book, by the way, and as far as we know, his life on this earth. But God knows about verses 6 through 12. There's stuff happening Job doesn't know. There's stuff happening you and I don't know. There's things taking place all around us we don't see. And there's things that are going to happen in the future that we don't know about. And there's things that have happened in the past that we don't understand. And God's at work. Can we trust him? Because God will do whatever he has to do to bring you to faith and to grow you in your faith. And I use that word whatever intentionally. And it doesn't make sense to us. Think about when Peter was first, he spent three years with Jesus. Peter's first told about Jesus dying on the cross. He says, no way. It doesn't make sense to him. He doesn't understand the big picture. So Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the elders, and then they're going to kill me. And, and Peter says, no. No, 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 that can't happen. That's not, that's not God's plan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. God knows stuff. He sees stuff we don't see. What he's doing is he's revealing himself. He doesn't need to explain all the answers. He starts telling us the answers. Here's the reality. We can't handle the answers. Our finite minds can't comprehend all the things that he's doing because he's so much bigger than us. He sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know. He's been where we haven't been, and he knows the end before the beginning. He is all of that. He's the only one that is eternal. He was. End of statement. Do we trust him? We'll do whatever. Well, he lets his son die. He's going to take the worst sin that ever happened, ever, and use it that we could have faith in his son and a relationship with him. What do you think it was like for the disciples when Jesus died and they don't know the end of the story? See, we've read the story so many times, we know the story so many times. Just imagine, Jesus gets, you're following him, you believe he's the Messiah, the one that's been promised. Jews had no category for a crucified Messiah. He gets crucified, darkness covers the earth, they bury him in the ground, earthquake takes place, and you know what they're doing? End of the book of John. They're hiding in a room, terrified. Talk about despair. Talk about a heavy weight to carry. Talk about a burden. My, my wife was standing outside the car this week and uh, talking to a friend. And uh, the two of the little girls were inside the car, and they were watching a, a Bible DVD on the car. And they rolled the window down, and they said, Mom, Jesus just died! My wife was trying to calm down. She's like, oh, he, he comes back to life. It's okay. Again, okay, keep the conversation going. See, we know the Easter story. God knows the Easter story. God knows all the resurrection stories. We don't when we're living in the moment. Most of us, we're living in the part where we're hiding in the room, and we're terrified. What are you going to do with your burdens? God can handle them. He's big enough. He can handle your biggest burdens. So you know what that means? He can handle the small stuff too. And he knows what he's doing. He knows the end before the beginning. He knows all around you. He knows everything that's taking place. Will you trust him? So if you don't, then what happens? What are you going to do if you don't? Where are you going to go? It makes me think of a story that I read several years ago. Max Cato shared this story about a woman named Rebecca Thompson. She died two times, he said. First time inside, second time physically. And what ended up happening with Rebecca Thompson is uh, when she was 18 years old, she went to a store in Wyoming with her little sister, who was an 11-year-old uh, little girl named Amy. And when they came out of the store, they both got abducted by some thugs. Got taken about 40 miles away from where the store was at and uh, over to this bridge. The bridge is about 112 feet above the ground. Um, they beat and they raped um, Rebecca repeatedly. And somehow she talked them into not doing the same thing to her sister, Amy. 
but threw both girls over the bridge when they were done with them. Amy died when she hit the rocks. Uh, Rebecca hit the rocks, fell into the water, and the next day they found her. And she was bruised, and, and it was bad news, but um, they were able to heal her wounds and um, get her back to health. But she says she died on the inside. And they prosecuted. They found the guys who did this. They prosecuted them. And um, they live happily ever after, right? Well, she's carrying this weight around inside. And she kept trying to carry it. Nineteen years later, she's in the car with her boyfriend, two-year-old daughter in the back seat, and she hits the gas and starts going 70 miles an hour back up to that bridge. And she stops, gets out of the car, sits on the edge of the bridge, and starts to cry and tell the story. And her boyfriend's hearing the story and, and takes their two-year-old daughter back into the car. He says when he put the little daughter in the car... He heard Rebecca's body hit the water. She jumped. Couldn't handle the burden anymore. Carrying this weight around for 19 years. What are you going to do? We all have burdens. I mean, you can smile and pretend like you got it and carry it around. I can take it to God. He says, Jesus says, you weary and burdened? Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, he says this. 11, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So he gives us something to carry. He says, learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, because I do the work when you carry what I give you. For my yoke, what I give you to carry, is easy, and my burden is light. First Peter chapter 5, and verse 7, Peter tells those suffering Christians, cast your anxieties, cast your cares, on Jesus. Peter doesn't say, give them to me, I'll help you. Peter says, you give them to Jesus, he cares for you. So what are you going to do with your biggest burdens? And what about all the other ones? Can you trust him? That's the whole series is going to be about. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and uh, Lord willing, we bring our weights to you. We bring the heavy stuff to you. We bring the things that we have a hard time carrying. Some of us like to pretend like we got it. I pray that you'd stop us from pretending. And we'd be honest with you. And we'd be able to be like Habakkuk, crying out to you, how long? Where are you? What are you doing? And then in that, you'd draw out our desires and show us that our desires ultimately for you and you'd give us you. And then we'd cast our cares on you. And we'd lay our burdens at your feet. We'd give you the weight. And you'd show us that the weight is light when we carry the cross that you give us to carry. And we carry your light into this world and we carry the things that you want us to do that you'll do ultimately through us and promise that you'll always be with us. God, make your presence evident today, please. I'm just going to give you a couple moments to continue to talk to the Lord. Maybe you need to talk about a specific burden you have. Maybe your burden is that you're separated from God and you need eternal life and he's offering himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ, that he used the murder of his son so that you could have life, so that you could have redemption. And trust Jesus to be your Savior. And some of you might need to talk about other things, heavy things. You might even be thinking about heavy things in someone else's life. And carry those burdens to the Lord. Give them to Him. Watch Him do a work in you. And He can do a work through you. And uh, Pastor Jad's going to have some scripture. If you want to reflect on some scripture, will you sit there? Just think about who Jesus is.